0: Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions.
1: Unelectables and on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is it, Kirk, the first podcast after the federal election i see you're wearing your alberta independence t-shirt there you ready to go i'm ready to go all right we'll talk more about that in a little bit ladies and gentlemen it is the first time that you have heard from us since the federal election of course uh, a lot has happened this is the unelectables we hope you're strapped in because this is going to be one hell of a ride Okay, Kirk, let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is that uh, Alberta, by and large, uh, rejected, in a first-past-the-post manner of speaking, rejected the Liberal Party, uh, completely electing a full slate of blue, uh, with the exception of one seat in Edmonton, Edmonton Strathcona, which went orange, went for the NDP. Uh, that the most progressive uh, riding in the province Well, looks. the nice thing is we stuck to traditional PC colors. That's true. We are blue with a little trim of orange. Now, um, we, uh, as a result of that, Alberta does not have uh, anybody who could potentially sit in cabinet, at least as an elected member of the Liberal Caucus. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the past few days about how Justin Trudeau is going to deal with that, whether he... Uses an independent liberal senator to fill that role from Alberta. Uh, people are talking about Paula Simons possibly uh, being able to fit that bill, but that's tricky because Paula's an independent senator, uh, which was at the insistence of Justin Trudeau himself. There's been talk about utilizing uh, Rachel Notley in that role if she would be open to it. There's been talk about utilizing Nahed Nenshi or Don Iveson, mayor of Edmonton, in that role. How can Justin Trudeau actually show in a theatrical sense? Because, of course, what he does, um, you know, behind closed doors is not really relevant to the conversation. People want to see something visible that says, I have Western, meaning Alberta and Saskatchewan, which also didn't elect any liberals, a representation in the cabinet around the decision-making table. What can Trudeau do to address that? I guess the question is going to be whether or not a cabinet post is the way to go,
0: because no matter who he gives it to, it's not going to sit well with with conservatives in the province, mm-hmm. right? Conservatives, conservatism, um, or at least at least uh, the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, their conservatism, uh, that is what uh, was was strongly endorsed by Alberta. So even even the idea of appointing a senator. From Alberta, once that senator is seen as not being of that conservative mindset, I don't know that it's going to do much to appease it at all, mm-hmm. and and then you, of course you have the additional issues that people will bring up about uh, having cabinet ministers who are not elected. Not that 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 is um, not that you can't do that in our system, uh, but it's also very rare, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that that necessarily solves anything, especially if it's somebody who isn't sitting in caucus.
1: Well, and we've already seen some pushback to the idea uh, from the provincial governments in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Scott Moe, premier of Saskatchewan, sent a very strongly worded letter to Trudeau the morning after the election. And we've seen cabinet ministers in Alberta say, hey, you know what? 70% of people who voted in Alberta voted for conservatives. If Justin Trudeau wants to talk to somebody about what the West wants, he can call us. He has our number. So as we look at those options, and it sounds like maybe a cabinet minister isn't necessarily the way to go, or at least bringing in somebody to be the token Western representative, could we see an approach like we've seen from other governments that were shut out of a geographic area where they say, have a minister whose title is the minister responsible for relations with Western Canada, say, yeah. and you appoint somebody in the Liberal Caucus who doesn't represent a riding in Saskatchewan and Alberta, but maybe grew up or has deep ties out here. Yeah, you could definitely do something like that. Even, even with a role
0: like that, I mean, you could theoretically appoint a conservative minister at that point. The, the problem is that you're going to get this oppositional piece, right? The, the two parties have proven already that they're not in any state to work with each other. You know, if, if, it were, if it were, say, back in the late 90s when, when Preston Manning's opposition was about opposition in terms of uh, giving improvement and, and really trying to craft bills rather than simply being against it, um, then maybe you would see that, that type of movement a little bit more. But, but the way that those two parties played in the election mm-hmm. in the sandbox, there's no way it's going to happen, right? There's no way that you're going to let somebody closer to your government... Uh, even even not in the caucus position, simply because there are things that happen at the cabinet table that they might not want necessarily their opponents
1: knowing. right. Well, and the most recent uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Christia Freeland is a born and raised Albertan right even though she represents a riding in Toronto. so that's a that's a possibility as well. Um, of course, we are in this minority situation and we do have, uh, another addition to the ever-expanding section of our podcast called Irata, which is I made a statement on our live cast on election night that said the NDP federally had never been in the catbird seat. they had never been in this position when, in fact, they were when they were propping up Pierre Trudeau's minority liberal government back in the 70s. Sure, with Ed Broadbent. Yeah. yeah, so that's my bad. I made a mistake. I'm sorry I've been a bad boy. Now, with all of that said, though, we now find ourselves in a situation where Justin Trudeau is uh, ostensibly going to try to lead a minority parliament, um, and and what comes with that is you have to, first of all, elect a speaker, Yes. Um, and Elizabeth May has said that she would potentially be interested in that job, and uh, I can see you shaking your head. We'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit, but... First things first, how's Trudeau's relationship with uh, with the other party leaders coming out of this election? I mean, you mentioned it was a bruiser of an election, perhaps one of the most brutal we've seen uh, in, in quite a long time. Uh, do you get the sense that these people can work together? I
0: think to some degree. I'm, I'm not sure that Andrew Scheer and, and Justin will ever be able to fully work work with each other, but I, I don't see a problem necessarily with Jagmeet Singh. Um, and the block is going to, to play nice simply to get things that they want, anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're because being a regionalist party um, and having as much power as they do, um, they they have some ability to to uh, wield a, a larger stick. Mm-hmm. Which of course, I mean, this this is of course part of why Western separatism has become a bit of a thing, right? Because we're we've seen in previous elections a regionalist party. Uh, wield that level of power, so so that's where, where we are seeing some of this that we'll talk about later. But but certainly in terms of can Justin work with Jagmeet? Saying absolutely can Justin work with the block? Absolutely. Um, the thing is, they're going to use this opportunity to get as close to him as possible until they need to wield the uh, the stick in a in a an election situation again.
1: Right, so it's very much a Julius Caesar situation. Absolutely. Right? Where, uh, where it's the people closest to you and then you look, and you know, A2, Andrew. Um, okay, so we talked a little bit about uh, the idea that Western separatism is, is on the rise. Um, how's how's Trudeau's relationship with other first ministers, with premiers coming out of this election? Because there was a lot of back and forth between him and the premier of Alberta, as I mentioned before. There's already been some some words exchanged between he and Scott Moe. Uh, Doug Ford was uh, was sort of portrayed as a boogeyman for the Liberal campaign in Ontario to great success, as it turns out. Um, can can Trudeau work with these with these premiers, especially considering that? Everywhere from Alberta to the Ontario border is a uh, uh, conservative government at this point. Well, Manitoba's premier has, rel- has stayed
0: relatively out of it. Even when, when Scott Moe and, and Jason Kenney were starting to, to use some harsher language, Manitoba really stayed out of it. Um, so so there's some possibility there. Um, obviously not going to get along well with Doug Ford. There, there is some, some potential issue that justin can have with the first ministers it's really going to depend on what the issue is and how he's able to placate them um you'll have to remember that that for the most part the first ministers can't wield a lot of power unless they they really band together um and they need and, and it's not a simple majority either mm-hmm. so it's he could probably he can't afford to to turn his back on the First Ministers, but he probably doesn't have to worry about them as much as uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan would like to think.
1: Well, there's, there's an old saying that you cannot govern without consent of the governed, right? And so even though the Liberals did win this election in terms of they won the most seats um, versus the other parties, at the end of the day... The premiers of Alberta and Ontario, by and large, are very popular within their own provinces. Sure. And when they say, we're going to war with Ottawa, we're going to war with Trudeau, that really stirs up the people in their provinces to the point where you could see people deciding to take a stand against what they feel is federal overreach into certain things, uh, much as we saw protests against the Wheat Board in Alberta and Saskatchewan back in the day. Um, But uh, the idea that these Western premiers are fanning the flames of Western separatism is something I wanted to touch on a little bit because uh, as much as you have heard these premiers talking about Western separatism in a way that you did not ever hear in the past, not from premiers at least, the premier of Manitoba is taking a very different tack. You mentioned him before, Brian Pallister. He just won re-election in Manitoba just in the past, I think, month and a half. Yeah, it was in September. Yeah, and uh, he was asked about Western separatism. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a short YouTube clip here. Uh, It's uh, courtesy of CTV News, and uh, if it doesn't come across on the recording, I'm going to edit it. So, this is Brian Pallister talking about Western separatism. Overcome your difficulties together. Don't threaten to leave. I listened to this from Quebec for years, and I don't like listening to it from Western Canadian friends of mine. So no, I have no time for that kind of thing. We're going to make the country work. We work together on it. We make a commitment to it. It's a relationship.
0: My wife and I have been together for 35 years, and we don't get stronger as a couple by threatening to leave
1: every week. Okay, so that's Brian Pallister on the idea of, of using separatism as a, as a stick uh, to, to get your way in Confederation. Uh, what do you think? Is that the kind of rhetoric that is going to actually find a home? Here in Alberta and Saskatchewan, or is the pain still too raw? Well,
0: I mean, we could. There's probably going to be essays written, um, even theses written about the the seeds of Western separatism. It's a very different situation than Quebec. Quebec is cultural, right? And and it's. I mean, it's always been that. It's kind of you know from from the plains of Abraham on, right? Like this is this has been endemic to. To the the Canadian question, Western separatism has been more of feeling locked out and needing and needing a boogeyman to some degree, mm-hmm. right? Because because Albertans, let's face it, regardless of if you you know believe the Conservative Party uh, should be the party or not, Alberta has not done itself any favors by voting Conservative time and time again right so you know from from a federalist party perspective you know why as a conservative party would you do something special for alberta when you could when when that when doing something for alberta could cost you seats in ontario and quebec mm-hmm. and you know you're going to get your alberta seats anyways and why as a liberal party would you Give anything to Alberta when you know that none of them are going to vote for you, anyways. Why would you promise anything to them? And again, because you you are placating to Ontario and Quebec and 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 some of the other other provinces. So Alberta's in this situation where we, where we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So so to some degree we're we're at our own fault. But then you also have this this component that you know, and again I, we could probably get into two months of talking about this but you've got this component where you've got an oil industry where the price was significantly high for a very long period of time Uh, you had individuals who did not require advanced degrees in order to get into that industry and make uh, quite decent salaries Mm -hmm. right Uh, but now now due to market forces Uh, Not just the not building of pipelines, which, let's face it, has not been done by any of the federal governments, Mm -hmm. not just the Liberals. Um, You know, the Harper government held control for a long time prior to the Liberals, and we didn't see building of pipelines then. Um, It's not just a pipelines issue, it's a market issue. People are able to get oil from other places, while in Alberta, we have had to resort to more and more creative solutions to even getting it out of the ground, right? First, it was just straight down. Then we had to basically build in these directional drilling wells so that we could get at it from the side. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to pull it from the sands, and and these are expensive. And when you've got high prices, you can afford to do that. You can afford to pay the people to do that, the labor, all of that. When prices go down, you can't do that. And, and individuals who are making significant money doing labor on, on these, these dr- drilling rigs, where do they go for jobs now? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there, there's this big problem, and, and Alberta hasn't really been good at diversifying its economy. I mean, we've got tons of chemical engineers. Why we're not thinking in terms of pharmaceuticals, I don't know. You know, we've got all of these, these very intelligent people who are who are building these intelligent systems. Why we're not going into other technical systems to diversify, I don't know. Um, and even even from a labor perspective, we have a lot of opportunity to do things like um, solar panel work and, and wind work and, and all of that. And we really haven't. We haven't diversified. So all of this, we have done almost to ourselves as a province. Mm-hmm. And now we're in a situation where we can very easily say that the federal government doesn't care about us, the federal government isn't doing anything about pipelines, so it creates this boogeyman effect that is really useful for a provincial government who uh,
1: historically has not you know, necessarily helped the situation. Right. So, I mean, right, the, the global price of oil has been a problem in Alberta for quite some time. And if you if you get in the Wayback Machine to 2008 and listen, it was all Ed Stelmack's fault, right? Ed Stelmack brought down the global price of oil. And if you don't believe me, ask the Wild Groves. And then you fast forward a few years to 2012, it's Alison Redford's fault that, that oil is so low. And then you fast forward a few years to, to 2016, and it's Rachel Notley's fault, right? It's, it's 100% Rachel Notley's fault that, that, uh, that nobody wants our oil. And now we look to, to 2019, and it's all Justin Trudeau's fault, that nobody, nobody wants to pay top dollar for our oil. The reality of the situation is that the global price of oil is, is a direct impact of the policies of OPEC. Right? Sure. And OPEC, uh, the Saudis and, and other oil-producing and exporting countries from the Middle East, have flooded the market with product driving down uh, the, the, the price of oil. So adding to that problem is the fact that given the lack of pipelines that we have in Alberta, the number one customer for our product is also a competitor of ours. Sure. Right? It's like if you own a Burger King within a McDonald's. (laughs) So, I mean, the the Americans are the only ones uh, who have pipelines to get our oil. And they are making their own. So they don't want to pay top dollar for hours.
0: Well and, and the other thing that, that makes it really easy to make the federal government a boogeyman here is is the liberals push for um, cleaner cleaner energy and and really green policies, right? Mm-hmm. Because because in Alberta we know what what it takes to get our oil out of the ground. Uh, we know what type of policies the Alberta government has had in for a very long time um, that I mean even going back to the Ralph Klein days when he was Environment Minister Mm -hmm. uh, there were some really really stringent policies put in place under Alberta uh, for what to do with land and and it's not perfect by any means but it is certainly cleaner than a lot of the oil that comes out of the ground around the world right so so You know, when when you hear the liberal government talk about green this and green that, and people don't see pipelines being built, regardless of what government failed to put in those pipelines, Mm -hmm. you get this, you know, Albertans certainly have this feeling of, well, at least if our oil could get out there, at least it would be a cleaner way
1: of coming out of the ground than, Mm -hmm. say, in Saudi Arabia. And it's not just the cleanliness of the manufacturing; it's also the issues around human rights, sure, uh, which are critically important, of course. Right. This comes up anytime we talk about China and and yeah. and green policies, right? Right. But uh, is is part of it also just that that feeling that we get as Westerners and as Albertans? I mean, it's dr- driven into us from a young age that just about everything we see around us in this province is because directly or indirectly of our energy industry, at least since 1947, since, sure. since, since Turner Valley. So um, everything we've got from our provincial parks to our roads, to our schools, to our hospitals, this is all because of the the benefits that we have reaped from our, our energy industry. And when we hear people talking about, we're gonna go green, we're going to eventually phase out the need for a carbon-based economy, that sort of thing, we we almost take it personally. It's like the coal miners in Kentucky, who, who go, "Well, God, I mean, we've got we've got the cleanest, uh, most ethically sourced coal on the planet," and people, "Yeah, but it's still really gross, and we don't need it anymore." And if, instead of having a conversation, uh, because the two sides are just so intractably entrenched in their positions, it just becomes a case of, "Well, why do you hate me? Well, I don't hate you. Why do you hate the planet?" And, and we can't really have a discussion from that point of view. The federal election in a lot of conservative circles was about how Justin Trudeau hates Alberta and hasn't done anything for Alberta and is trying to landlock our resources and all of that. But let's not forget, he bought a pipeline in order to keep that project going. And it's been stalled by the courts. But that's because we're a country that is ruled by law. And if the government could just overrule the court and build a pipeline anyway, we would be Saudi Arabia. And, and again, I, I, I think there's some,
0: some pieces here that, that Albertans see as a blatant hypocrisy, uh, right? So, you know, you have Justin not getting this, this pipeline forward, you know, even though it is held up in the courts. And that, that is the reason that it, it hasn't moved forward. But there's also S and C leveling, mm-hmm. right? Like every time, every time there's there's something where well the government can't do this because of this. There's some sort of counterexample, and it's they're never perfect counterexamples, mm-hmm. but they're close enough that people can look at it and go, well, you know, if you can go around the law here,
1: well, and this know, is this is the text message that I got yesterday afternoon, okay, on my work cell phone. Because it was just blanket texted to most of the 403 and 587 numbers in the province. Hi, it's Sue from Alberta Proud. Stop for a moment. Alberta Proud is funded in large part by the Manning Center. Going on. Justin Trudeau cares more about jobs in Quebec than jobs in Alberta. Is it time for Alberta to get a new deal? Yes or no? So that's the text message that I got, and it goes straight to what you just said. It presents the fact that Justin Trudeau cares more about jobs in Quebec as as just fait accompli. It's a fact. It's not an opinion. It's it's nothing that we think is happening. This is absolutely true, fellow Albertan. Don't you agree with me? And, I mean, that creates a, a situation where Trudeau really can't win for trying out here.
0: No, and then and then the last piece that I think it's really important to bring this back to, especially because I talked about how you had these uh, well-paid uh, workers in in the industry who, who, let's legitimately face it, if the price of oil does not get back up to where it needs to be mm-hmm. to start getting this oil out of the sands, uh, those people will, there, there's a significant portion of them who will never have jobs that paid as well
1: again. I've got friends who are working uh, at... Uh... At oil uh, manufacturing in the Middle East right now, and and so when they were in
0: those jobs, mm-hmm. they were paying taxes. Yeah, and the the thing that we keep hearing here, and it's it's being being bolstered by Jason Kenney himself, equalization, mm-hmm. right? This idea that um, we as Albertans contribute more to the country than it gives back to us, right? Which we again, this is another thing you could you could. I don't know go to an eight-hour course on a saturday about the equalization formula um which is happening in february by the way um but you could go to a course like that and talk about equalization for eight hours or you know or you can just have these very high level like oh yeah these transfer payments happen Mm. well well you and i have discussed this before on here it's not like that and part of the reason why alberta contributes as much is because we did have these high wealth positions Mm -hmm. so we were taxed at a higher rate and that's how the money gets into the pool of general revenues for the Mm -hmm. the federal government and then and then transfers happen out to
1: provinces through different means like employment insurance Right. right and provinces that are otherwise unable to maintain certain standards for public services Given the amount that they're already taxing so that's why Alberta is always a net contributor to this program is because Alberta's taxes are so far below the next closest province that the federal government looks at Alberta when Alberta says well we need money to do things and the federal government I think quite rightly says so raise taxes like you could raise taxes to the point where you as a province were pulling in $5 billion more billion a year and you would still be the lowest taxed people in the country. So if you want to buy that nice, shiny bauble for your citizens for $500 million, raise taxes a quarter of a point. But, but that's not good. I'm going to say conservative in
0: quotation marks. Mm-hmm. That's not good conservative policy. No. Especially in a time when Albertans are hurting. Mm-hmm. Right? This is... This is probably not the time as a provincial government, unless you never want power again, mm-hmm. to bring in a PST. And that's the problem is we don't bring in a PST when money is good because we don't need it. Yeah. And then we don't bring in a PST when, when times are bad because those gosh darn Easterners mm-hmm. um, are, are you know, taking our money and distributing it elsewhere. and it's, it's, yeah. so, so again, it, you know, really getting back to where this conversation was about... This Western separatism piece, so much of it, is what Alberta has done, mm-hmm. and or or not done. And we we also see how the rest of the country works. We see how, um, or how how parties placate to uh, the eastern provinces. You know, eastern being Ontario, Quebec, and yep. and Maritimes. Um, and even the Maritimes would argue with that because you know, they have they certainly have their own issues with the federal government. Well the Maritimes just have their own issues, period. So so the Joey's trying to trying to bug his girlfriend. Um,
1: so he doesn't really he doesn't really believe that. She she's from Nova Scotia or Newfoundland or one of those tiny little provinces over on the right side of the map. I'm I I'm not I'm gonna walk out of this. Um
0: anyways but but you know you've got you've got these parties placating to the two most populous provinces. Mm-hmm. They're going for seats there. They know they're not going to get anything from Alberta, so of course they can placate there even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's all these other things going on, and and the governments in the western provinces have been very adept at making this
1: the federal government's fault, regardless of. Yeah them being complicit. Well it's one of the uh, oldest and truest sayings in politics the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. Right and at the end of the day you've got um, people in Quebec who are willing to vote for any of four parties federally depending on who is speaking to them in terms that they find favorable. You've got voters in Ontario willing to support any of three parties. You've got voters in British Columbia willing to support any of three parties and then you look at Saskatchewan and Alberta by and large no matter what they're going to support the same party irrespective of what happens in the election and what's promised and and what's delivered upon so it's no surprise that you see these federal parties saying well I'm gonna be more likely to pay attention to and uh, out to voters in British Columbia because they might actually elect my party or or Quebec or Ontario or the Maritimes at least can go one of two directions, maybe even one of three. And now maybe even, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, one of four with a, a, a green elected in Fredericton. So now we're talking about competitive races, places that are willing to stand up and say, hey, you know what? If you're not willing to play ball with us as a community, we might go to the other side. Uh, that's how you get stuff and it doesn't matter whether you're a separatist or whether you're just voting um, uh... one of two different directions as long as you make it clear to elected officials that you have options and you might consider them if they will give you something you've got a much better chance of getting your way
0: and and so i think i think the issue the western provinces now have is is there's a lot of people in the western provinces who do not want left-leaning parties, mm-hmm. right? They don't want the Liberals, they don't want the NDP, they don't want the Greens. Well, you know, Greens being left-leaning could be could be debated, depending on different times in their history. Um, you know, so so kind of what are you left with? Well, well, we're going to vote conservative because of that. Uh, so so now they need a tool uh, that will will potentially do the same thing, right? So so we don't have. Uh, or Westerners might not always feel, and this is not all Westerners, of course, but but you know Westerners, especially who are conservative, might not feel like they have a mechanism for getting what they need, given that we tend to vote a certain way. So separatism now becomes uh, that tool, and and certainly I'm sure there are separatists who who honestly believe that we should be gone, and and certainly you know these are the ones quoting UN pieces about about getting pipelines to to seawater and and things like that uh but i think a lot of people look at separatism as a means it's a it's a way to it's it's a way to threaten the country to basically go like look if you're not gonna gonna start considering us as part of the team Mm -hmm. even though we're a little bit different um then we're gonna we're gonna walk out and and so the question then becomes: How effective a tool can that be? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's it, to some degree, it's worked for the Bloc, right? I mean, especially in you know the Lucien Bouchard days and and Jacques Parizeau, and you know, like they they held a lot of power at that point, um, with the Parti and the Bloc. So you know we see this, and and there's there's kind of this view that Quebec is placated to because of that. You know, assuming that. We don't think about their population or anything like that as well. Uh, So I guess the question is, can a separatist party in Alberta, regardless of the reasons that we have moved in this direction, Mm -hmm. can it be an effective tool to get
1: what we need provincially from the federal government? Well, Quebec's an interesting stew because, of course, the choice is not just federalist or separatist for party. Uh, There's the federalist liberals, the federalist conservatives, the Federalist uh, uh, NDP or the Sovereignist Bloc Québécois. So voters uh, chose all four of those parties uh, in, in this most recent election, although not many Conservatives and certainly not many New Democrats, only one. Uh, and that's going to be a problem that the New Democrats and Conservatives are going to be trying to trying to solve here over the next little bit. Um, so is what you're saying that the Western separatist movement is basically a, a, a re-imaged iteration of, of the reform movement? Well, where it was, it was the choice on the ballot between Conservative 1 and Conservative 2, but at least there was a choice. Well, I'm, I'm kind of
0: wondering if, if that's it and if, it, if, it's a, if it's a rehash of the West wants in, mm-hmm. right? And Because that, that was the 1993 campaign of the Reform Party, right? Mm-hmm. The West wants in. Um, and, then, and then eventually they had to change that image because they were actually getting seats in Ontario. Um, and suddenly the West was in. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to figure out. And, and the thing that, that gets me about sovereignist parties is it feels like a very dangerous tool to be wielding. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're going to use a, an incredibly powerful saw mm-hmm. to cut through wood... But you have no safety mechanism on it. There's no way to stop
1: that if it goes and runs off. Yeah, you can't get that toothpaste back in the tube. You can't unring that bell. And the thing is, what makes it all the more, I think, rash is that this is coming at a time when just four years ago, we still had a conservative prime minister from... Calgary Southwest, I mean, he, he wasn't born in Calgary, but he was a Calgary member of parliament, Stephen Harper. He was the prime minister of the country for 10 years. And, and that was just four years ago. So it's not as though the, the conservatives and the West have been shut out of federal government for a generation. Um, we ran things essentially for a decade. Um, And and that just ended one election ago, so for people to say, you know, the the federal government's never been on our side, uh, Eastern Canada doesn't respect and won't elect a a party that is run by a Western Canadian, that just doesn't ring true. It sounds like sour grapes more than it sounds like legitimate grievance to people in Eastern Canada who are saying, look, you guys were just in charge for 10 years. You gotta give us more than four and and of
0: course, Jason Kenney himself was part of the Harper government mm-hmm. He was involved with with discussing equalization now you know people people do like to say that he was he was part of of equalization formula as exists now I mean equalization formula was tweaked mm-hmm. but you know what, what it includes you know can can still be can still be manipulated but in the at the end of the day jason kenney was at that table as well right right so it's you know and and so you know when you hear jason kenney talk about how the equalization formula is unfair and how um you know how pipelines haven't been built and that type of thing I, there is a bit of reflection
1: that is required there mm-hmm. Because Uh, it's easy for him to say that now when he's not beholden to Stephen Harper to try and win seats in Ontario and Quebec and the Maritimes, and he's just worried about Alberta. But when he had the opportunity to speak up when this equation was being figured out, he was thinking in terms of, we need to get people elected in Montreal. We need to get people elected outside Quebec City. We need to get people elected in St. John. And so... Um, we, we need to come up with an, a, a formula that is acceptable across the country, and if it pisses off Alberta, so what? They're going to vote for us anyway. Right, and
0: and that gets back to the original piece, right, is we're always going to vote for the Conservatives. So if you have, if it, from a game theory perspective, mm-hmm. if you piss off Alberta but they're not going to change what they do, and it and it keeps the other provinces happy. That is a better solution from any any person actually looking at this, you know, from a decision making standpoint than pissing off Ontario and Quebec to help Alberta when they're not gonna change their stripes. So that that's what it fundamentally comes down to. And you're right, once he no longer needs to worry about getting votes federally, yeah, he can fight for these things. And it's it's not disingenuous for him to fight for them. Mm-hmm. What's, what's disingenuous is that he is playing both sides. And he's blaming Justin Trudeau for the inequality. And, and look, I'm happy to blame Justin Trudeau for a lot of
1: things that Justin Trudeau should be to blame for. But I'm not sure that this is it. Right. Yeah, I stubbed my toe this morning and I said, damn it, Trudeau! Um, and that was totally his fault. But we'll talk more about why that is later. He sneaks into my house sometimes and moves my furniture.
0: Thanks, Obama.
1: Or Notley. Now, we've been beating around the bush. We've talked about it a few times. Um, uh, since the election, Justin Trudeau has apparently, according to updates uh, on CBC News just yesterday, not actually spoken since election night with any of the other federal party leaders, um, which is an interesting way to go about setting up your minority government. Um, But he has been quoted as saying, we are going ahead with the pipeline. Uh, Trans Mountain is getting built. So with that said, um, he's decided that he's going to go ahead with that. The federal NDP don't like it. The federal conservatives would be insane to oppose it because it's one of the key parts of their uh, election platform. But they're waiting on the courts still. Uh, What is the next step with this pipeline? To be honest, I'm
0: I'm not all that all I'm, I'm not up enough on this on the particular case mm-hmm. to know exactly what needs to happen. Certainly, if something is held up in the
1: courts, there's nothing that can happen until it's released by the courts. Okay. Well, I'm going to put a call out now on the air, so to speak, or on, on the electrons. The next time we record, I want to have Markham Hislop call in. And Markham can talk about the issues around the pipeline and what needs to happen next to get it built, because Markham is is an expert on uh, on the energy industry as a whole uh, as pertains to Western Canada. I know he's uh, he's stationed out in British Columbia right now, but uh, Markham, we'd love to have you on to discuss uh, this important issue. Uh, I'll reach out to you privately as well, but this is me publicly shaming you into appearing on the unelectables. Ah, ah. Now, um, we've seen since the uh, uh, federal election result, uh, big layoffs here in Calgary at Husky. And also the announcement just yesterday uh, that Encana is going to move its corporate headquarters to the states and uh, rebrand itself. So, obviously, Justin Trudeau's fault, these are decisions that were just made in the last two weeks. Yes?
0: Well, the Husky decision has been a long time in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know it if if you're gonna blame anybody in terms of the timing you're you're probably more accurate blaming not on this one right because because of stuff in the works um right. i think that the thing that that is bothering people right now is that husky didn't post a a horrible quarter uh just prior to these layoffs mm-hmm. right and then Canada's not in a poor position what they they're they're looking to use being an American company as a
1: better way to build capital. Right Now, it's certainly nobody who's in the energy business is going to go out of business if they're headquartered in the United States and Donald Trump is president. So, so the, the thing with
0: this is, it's more the question that, that this, this ends up asking is, why is it better... To go to the United States to generate capital when Alberta is open for business,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And and I think that this is the question that I have throughout this this piece is if if Alberta is now the place to be, mm-hmm. you know why 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 do these decisions get made now? Now, frankly, this again this has been in the works for some time. You don't just come out with this shortly after a. Federal election um, because you didn't like the result of the election. I mean that this requires significant amount of internal resources, and it wouldn't surprise me if this was multiple years in the works. Mm-hmm. But you know, and, and this is partially why they blame Trudeau, right? Is is kind of the if if the environment isn't good for raising capital in Canada, it must be because of of the stuff happening with TMX and all of that. But but you have to you have to look at this going. You know, what is it about? Um, Alberta and and our viewpoint of Alberta in a, in a province where there are relatively low corporate taxes there are no consumption there's no consumption tax outside of the federal one um, income taxes are relatively small and fixed what what compels a company to move out right mm-hmm. and and so you know is it the federal government it could be But it wouldn't be just because of this recent election, right? you know, and and could it be could it be because of the previous provincial government
1: when this when some of these discussions started? Possibly. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to to put a not too fine a point on it, if you are a large corporation and you want to operate in Canada. Alberta is where you want to be. Sure. Right. Uh, You're paying lower taxes your people are paying lower taxes. Um, it's not Toronto for the metropolitan area. It's not Vancouver for the culture. It's not Old Montreal for the, the picture from your 50th floor you know, corner office. Um, but it, it is the place where you are most likely to make money if you're headquartered here. So if, you're, if you can't make it here, of all places... Then the question becomes Is it the federal environment that is causing you to move, or is it just that you get a better offer? And let's not forget that uh, cities in Alberta, as well as cities across the world, were falling all over themselves. HQ2. For Amazon. Yeah. Uh, bidding for HQ2. And essentially, they chose a place that. I mean, the location is a little curious because it's not physically all that far from their current HQ, but the tax breaks that they got as a corporation were such that I think, and I'm totally going to be wrong about this, but I think they would pay zero net tax on that location or to their people for 50 years?
0: <laughs> and and I mean, I, I remember a famous talk that... Uh... That Steve Jobs gave um, to the town council of Cupertino mm-hmm. uh, when they wanted to build a new facility, and and the town council was kind of looking at maybe not doing it, and he kind of said, "Well, you know, if we move, like all of these employees who pay taxes here uh, will move as well, right?" And and kind of saying like there there are other reasons that you bring companies in, but and and so that's that's the thing is is it's not just even. Right now, it's not a loss of jobs, at least on the Incana side, mm-hmm. right? Whether it will be a future loss in jobs, that's very possible. And, and then you've got a loss of jobs at Husky. You know, the, there are other tax implications to losing these companies mm-hmm. that provincial governments do not want to have to happen because it's just less tax, right? right. But, but certainly, yeah, it's, it's, it's the type of thing where provinces really need to work to to get these companies in and keep them there, which, which is also why it is so surprising to see the Alberta government looking at cutting the, the tax, uh, the, the tax break that they were giving to the electronic entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, because, um, and I can't remember the company right now. I, I know I've played the game their main game that they played, uh, or that they've made, um, insurgency sandstorm. Um, they they just moved to Calgary in February mm-hmm. because of the tax credits that that existed there and and you know so we had we we were actually seeing some diversification because the electronic entertainment industry is now one of the
1: largest industries in the world yeah and there was also a filming credit that was yeah, cut that's
0: right and um, and of course we have the brand new film center in the in Calgary mm-hmm. right so like all of these things um, you know we're we're losing Husky or Husky employees. We're losing in Canada's head office, and meanwhile, we're actively cutting the credits that was that we bringing in other industries into this province. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, not to not to start talking too much about the budget, but but the fact of the matter is, you know, there's there's all of these moving parts, and and again, not all of these decisions are made by the most recent government. Mm-hmm. Not all of these decisions were were you know started because you know Justin was elected. Or because um, be, you know because Jason Kenny um, took over from an outly government you know not not eight months ago, right mm-hmm. like there's there's lots of things at play and companies take a long time to make these decisions, uh, but certainly government policies don't help if if they're actively uh, preventing companies from from making the most money right
1: right Okay, so I want to... Talk um, about the election results in a couple key writings. Sure, um, because we we had some surprising results, or, or at least uh, surprising on the face of them. The first is that the Greens elected uh, a member of parliament, their first member of parliament outside British Columbia, and it was in Fredericton. Uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. Now, uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick is a part of the province that does, in fact, have a Green member of the Legislative Assembly in their provincial uh, legislature. But uh, on election night, their, their candidate in the federal constituency of Fredericton, uh, Jenica Atwin, uh, won by uh, just a little over 3% uh, over the conservative candidate, uh, Andrea Johnson. Is that the breakthrough that the Greens were hoping for? Or is there a sense of disappointment that they went into the election with a couple seats and they came out with three? I mean, on the one hand, it's an increase of 50%. And most parties would be happy with an increase of 50% of their caucus. But going from two to three is not exactly uh, a mind-blowing breakthrough either. What do you think? Well, I think the, the biggest problem for every party... Regardless
0: of how many seats were lost or gained in in this election uh, greens included is This was Justin Trudeau at his weakest mm-hmm. This was the Liberal Party's part uh, it, it was it was theirs to win to some degree because between the blackface between SNC Lavalin between Western alienation that you know the seeds of that were already sown there uh, between all of that, it, it really was Justin's um, time to go, and we didn't see that. And, and so, strong questions have to be asked from all parties of whether or not they achieved what they should have, mm-hmm. given that situation. Right. Right? The Greens, I mean, there, there were a lot of people who, at least from a from a hearsay standpoint, did not like Andrew Scheer, did not like Justin Trudeau, did not like Jack Mead Singh. And would typically park their vote with, then with the Greens. So why did the Greens not do as well, especially in terms of seats, as I think they would have liked? Um, you know, it, it's, it's an improvement. It's not the type of thing that, that really bolsters confidence the that the Greens will ever be anything more than a, a couple of seat party. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's the problem the Greens now have to contend with.
1: Well, and they themselves make that argument that unless we get proportional representation or mixed-member proportional or a transferable ballot, that they'll never be able to get over the hump into a mainstream party, even though they do garner a respectable amount of the national popular vote. Um, But, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. At the end of the day, they know they're signing up for a first-past-the-post election, and only three of their horses cross the finish line first. Right. And and the thing is, it's
0: not like other parties have not emerged from nowhere and and gotten a lot of seats, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we talked about the Reform Party. At one point, the Reform Party did not exist. Right, prior to 1987, there was no Reform Party of Canada. Mm-hmm. Ten right. years later, they had 52 seats. So, so it's it's not like it's an insurmountable problem in a first past the post environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's part of the hard look that needs n- needs to be there. At the same time, you know, it, there there is something to be said about the type of politician who can win an election. Is that the type of politician you want governing? right, right. And like that is very
1: old adage right but it's very very true because politics is best described by a lot of people as you have to win a popularity contest so that you have the privilege of being able to piss off as many people as possible sure um, so if we look for example um, uh, speaking of politicians who, who win the riding um, over to where the greens are traditionally strong in British Columbia uh, in, at Vancouver Granville We had an independent win election in a federal election. And this is an extremely rare situation. Kirk, you ran as an independent in a federal election. Um, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who became a household name as a result of the SNC-Lafalant affair, uh, garnered over 17,000 votes and beat the liberal candidate by over 3,000 in Vancouver-Granville to win election as an independent. Um, Is she... Doomed to sit in independent purgatory forever or has she written her own ticket here because the conservatives came out of SNC Lavalin loving her the uh, green leader Elizabeth May apparently during the campaign offered Jody wilson Rabel the leadership of the Green Party. I'm not sure how that works within the Green Constitution. I'm going to have to look that up. I don't think you can just name your uh, successor by fiat, but maybe you can in the Greens. But uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is, is a popular politician who won without a party behind her. What's the future hold for her? She's got lots of
0: options and it really depends on how she wants to play it too, right? Um, because she, if she joins a party, let's face it, all the other parties are, are going to start talking about how she wasn't elected in that party and therefore should not do that without an election and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Of course, if she comes to their party, they won't say that, right. um, because that's the first rule of politics: is, is do as I say, not as I do. Um, especially if if we're the uh, recipients. So, so there there's going to be that piece. Um, she has the opportunity to sit as an independent for the next four years, and or or however long this government lasts, and and be kind of a a voice of reason, uh, kind of like Chuck Cadman was uh, mm-hmm. back. Uh, you'll remember that uh, Charles Cadman uh, lost his conservative seat in a local nomination race, mm-hmm. ended up running as the independent and won his riding, uh, and then would would later go on to prop up the Paul Martin government during a crucial vote uh, back in two thousand six. No, uh, two thousand four.
1: Perhaps yes.
0: <laughs> it's been a while now, um, but you know, so, but but the thing is. Unlike the, the Charles Cadman situation, Jody wilson Rebold will never hold the balance vote, mm-hmm. right? There's there's too many too many NDP. There's too many Bloc Québécois. Um, she's not really needed by the Liberal government, so she'll have to decide whether whether it makes sense for her to join a party sooner rather than later. But but I'm sure most parties will, would welcome her with open arms. I can think of one that would, would one will not
1: <laughs> at least with its current leader. Yes. Um, nor to to Jody's credit. Do I think she would ever, in a million years, consider going back to the Liberal Party with Justin Trudeau as leader? That uh, that bridge has well and truly burned. So she's got plenty of options ahead of her. She's she's not the first. Uh, you know, I,
0: I talked about Chuck Cadman, but she's not. Mm-hmm. You know, there there have been others, and you know, like Bill Casey, I think uh, was elected as an uh, independent MP at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were some others that I can't uh, remember. Was I, Tony Clement was elected as an independent at one point? Was he not? Uh, I I'm not
1: sure about that one. I'm okay. remembering Garth Turner, perhaps. Garth
0: Turner. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's certainly happened before, and it's not it's not a complete rarity, especially if one sat as a member of parliament before. What they do with it after is 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 really partially their choice, and and if they're a smart politician. Um, they will go to their riding and at least talk to people. It might not be going to the election, but it might be at least talking to people. The thing with a minority parliament, though, is she might not want to join a party until, until you really get to see where balance of power is. And by that time, we might be thrust into another election
1: anyways. Well, and keeping in mind also that, and this is where we're going to go next, um, there's no way to tell at this point in time who the leaders of these various parties are going to be by the time Canadians are next asked to pass judgment on them. Right. Uh, speaking of, we spent a lot of time on election night talking about whether Justin Trudeau could uh, could survive losing a majority government. And it's quite clear, at least at this point, that he's going to. We haven't heard any rumblings from any corners of, of liberaldom that, uh, that Justin Trudeau's in trouble. Yeah, there's but, no Peter McKay in the liberal party. But holy crap is Andrew Scheer in trouble at least if you believe uh, the rumblings that you hear from conservative circles. Stephen Harper has come out and defended him, asked conservatives to give him more time because, of course, it took Stephen Harper several years uh, after bringing Paul Martin down to a minority situation to finally assume power, and then he was prime minister for 10 years. But uh, Peter McKay is already kicking tires. We're hearing people talking about other candidates out there in the weeds, possibly looking at running for the federal leadership of the conservative party. Uh, how much trouble is Andrew Scheer in here, having not won during what was the perfect storm and the perfect opportunity for him to go five hole on Justin Trudeau's Liberals? Well,
0: I think I think you know as I said before, like Justin Trudeau was at his weakest, and that's why every party has to reevaluate where they're at. Mm-hmm. The NDP lost seats. The Conservative Party is is holding a minority when they were the most likely to be be the government. I mean, when we talked about. The SNC Lavalin thing, when it came out back mm-hmm. in you know back in the spring, I asked the question: is is the Liberal Party better off um, running with Justin in the fall, mm-hmm. or or changing leaders and defying the fixed election date piece and moving on? And I honestly thought that that would actually be better for them because Justin was just going to sink sink the ship, and mm-hmm. we were going to see a conservative government this fall. I, in fact, if, if we went back there, I'm pretty sure, I might not have said it on the air, but I'm pretty sure
1: at that point I fully expected a conservative majority government. Mm-hmm. And so- and yet now we have a situation where um, Peter McKay, who has been the most publicly talked about potential replacement for Andrew Scheer, who, you know, the former and final leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, um... Uh, he he said essentially in so many words that Andrew Shear uh, missed on an open net. Well, and
0: you you know what the the thing with Peter McKay is great thing about Peter McKay is he has never ever stuck a knife in anybody's back in federal politics. Just ask David Orchard. Exactly, or for that matter, Belinda Stronach. So <laughs> you know, so it's it's not it's not really all that. Uh, Surprising that McKay is is already out on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether or not Andrew Shear is in real trouble, we almost need to wait to see that until the Conservative AGM, which is in April of
1: 2020. Yeah. Do you know where it is? Uh, Honestly, I don't. Okay. Well, uh, Conservative conventions are almost always very well attended, especially coming after uh, a federal election. There's going to be a lot of people there who have a lot of strong opinions about what should and should not have happened. During the, uh, during the federal campaign. Uh, they're going to be well represented by the Western provinces, well represented by Ontario. Um, it'll be interesting to see of course because since the inception of the uh, Conservative Party of Canada all they've had are Western leaders. They had Stephen Harper from the outset and then they had Rona Ambrose uh, as an interim leader from Edmonton and then they've had Andrew Scheer from Saskatchewan and if you look at the electoral map of Canada The fact that they were not able to uh, convert a lot of those potential seats in Ontario into conservative seats, the fact that they did so poorly in Quebec and got virtually shut out in, in the rest of Eastern Canada says to you that maybe, I mean, if not Peter McKay from Nova Scotia, maybe somebody from Quebec, maybe somebody from Ontario might be able to make some sort of inroads. And you know there are politicians from all of those regions of the country who uh, have, have good conservative bona fides who are looking and going, well, maybe this is my chance. And of course, there's also the people out west who are thinking, well, maybe this is my time. Sure. Uh, or, or who are in the process of getting drafted into this. I mean, I've been invited to draft Jason Kenney Facebook pages already. I've been invited to draft Brad Wall pages. I've been invited to a draft Christy Clark page. And she was the leader of the BC Liberals. But the B.C. liberals are a conservative party. Let's be clear about that. So uh, a lot of people are kicking tires. And the question is, how many of these are just people grasping at names, thinking, well, we got to bring this guy down sooner rather than later so we can be Trudeau. And how many of these are actually orchestrated campaigns that have been funding themselves and setting up the table for this for months, if not years? The, the thing is,
0: Andrew Scheer has... Less than six months mm-hmm. to redefine himself, or or actually, may I correct that, to define himself for the first time, because his because the conservative strategy from the summer on were a was a hundred of hundred days of Trudeau,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And the entire time Andrew Shear has been leader, it has very much been the I'm not those guys, right? Right? And anytime he's asked a pressing pressing question on something, it's like well that you know, will of the parliament and, like, there's been a lot that Andrew Shear has not been willing to stand up and say, these are my beliefs, regardless of if it hurts him or helps him. And, And I think he's got about six months to do that for sure, to define himself and hope that it's enough for him
1: to maintain power of the Conservative Party. Well, and there are subgroups in the Conservative Party, just like there are subgroups in every party... Um, I mean, you've got um, pro-life members who, if Sheer dares to come out and say, under no circumstances would we ever even allow a private member's bill to go to a vote, uh, that probably he would see a lot of people come out of the woodwork and start challenging him on that front. If he were to come out and not say that, he's going to have the more progressive red Tory wing of the party come out and come after him for that. So, I mean, he has to tread a very thin line here, but during the election campaign he was trying to be too cute by half by saying well that's a that's decided law and i support the law of the land and we talked at great length about how how insincere that seemed and although they won the popular vote which is a meaningless term in canadian federal elections um and and i'll explain why in just a second uh it, they got a plurality of the of the vote. Uh, It didn't uh, resound in enough constituencies to make a difference. Now, I want to talk very briefly about why the popular vote does not mean anything. And I know a lot of people who are regular listeners to the podcast are scratching their heads going, wait, (coughs) Joey's going to talk about math? But I want to explain this as simply as I can. So for purposes of this, because we could be talking about a provincial election, we could be talking about a federal election, it doesn't matter. Let's say we have 100 seats. 100 seats is easy. Okay, so we've got 100 seats, and say you've got one party that in 99 of those seats gets 51% of the vote. Every every seat has 100 constituents. They get 51 votes in 99 of those. Okay, 51 times 99, Kirk? Uh, it's going to be,
0: oh geez, uh, 510 minus 51, so 461.
1: 460,
0: uh, somewhere around there.
1: Okay. Kirk's a mathematician. Let's say 460. I some don't seats. deal
0: with numbers.
1: <laughs> okay. So they get 460 some seat, uh of votes, right? But the other party gets 49 votes in every seat. So they're not far behind, right? They're only really 198 votes behind. And then in that other riding, they get all 100 votes. Okay, so they came very close to winning the popular vote, but they only won one seat. Okay, in a first-past-the-post system, popular vote on a national scale doesn't matter. All that matters is who wins the seat. So for the Conservatives to say, well, we won the popular vote, well, that's great, here's a hero cookie. But at the end of the day, they won so many votes in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Ontario that didn't make a difference because they were already 10 and 15,000 votes ahead of the next closest candidate. Had you transferred those votes to, say, Central Nova or, or Quebec City, they would have made a difference in the outcome of the election. So popular vote doesn't matter under the current system. It's all about strategically putting your resources where you can win votes. Because if you win a riding by two votes, you still win. So, in the
0: errata section of uh, the unelectables, uh, we should notice that um, I probably shouldn't drink alcohol before uh, doing math on this, because, of course, I was off by a complete factor of ten. Wow. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. So, anyways, ninety nine times fifty one would have been five
1: five thousand forty nine. Oh, right. There you go.
0: Not not hundreds, but thousands.
1: So, anyways, there that's... Um, so, file that under errata. Now, we, uh, we are just past the hour mark here, Kirk, so um, we're just going to talk uh, very briefly about something I know that is near and dear to your heart, um, online voting. I thought we covered this in the live version. We did, but a lot of people weren't watching the live version. Is it a great idea, or is it the greatest idea? No. Okay. Thank you, Kirk. Um, So as we wrap up this episode here, uh, we just want to take a moment to thank all of you for listening. Uh, Please uh, like us uh, on Facebook. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter uh, at Unelectables. Uh, Please make fun of us on Twitter. Please, by all means, make fun of us on Twitter. Uh, Kirk, uh, Kirk holds the keys to the Twitter account, so that's a good way to yell at him. Um, we uh, we would really appreciate your feedback. Uh, Five star reviews on iTunes uh, would be very much appreciated. And yeah, we're we're gonna keep plugging away here. Uh, with any luck, God willing, and the creek don't rise, we've got almost two full years before the next election. We've got 23 months until the next scheduled election, which is the municipal elections in Alberta in uh, 2021. But those may also include a Senate election and a referendum on equalization depending on what happens between now and then
0: now now just for anybody who could be listening from outside Alberta um, this is just a thing we do and it doesn't really mean anything and if if anything the Senate election at most provides the prime Minister with a list of people who might be good candidates but uh, in the end, it's it's just a bunch of spending money on a campaign that doesn't
1: really exist. And the only Prime Minister who has ever appointed anybody from those lists, to my recollection, is Stephen Harper. Correct. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's our way of saying, well, we're going to elect Senators whether or not you pick them. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, I am the enlightened savage Joey Oberhoffner. And I
0: am slightly inebriated Kirk Schmidt. And we are The The unelectables. Unelectables.
1: Oh